0: Harvard Divinity School.
1: Ethical Scholarship, Gender, Religion, and Difference, Women's Studies in Religion Panel, August 24th, 2022.
0: They gave me the go ahead to start, so we're going to start. Um, I'm so delighted to see you. Um, my name is Ann Browdy. I'm the director of the Women's Studies in Religion program and a faculty member here at the Divinity School. And um, I've been waiting for you for three years for the in-person audience. (laughs) So it's really great to have you here. Um, And I am really uh, proud and thrilled to be able to introduce this year's group of visiting research associates in the Women's Studies and Religion program. This is the 50th year Uh, Of our program and this is the 50th group of scholars that we have brought to the school to push push the boundaries of religious studies and um, we started this project 50 years ago when I say we it was really you because um, the women's studies and religion program is the result of student activism in the 1970s and it remains a program that includes uh, student representatives on our search committee every year in the selection process. To we conduct an international search every year to bring the five scholars who we think are doing the most to push forward the boundaries of religious studies in the arena of of, of gender. So. Um, Without further ado, I'm going to introduce today's group and give you a chance to hear from them. Now, as uh, you probably know, each scholar who is visiting us this year will be teaching a course, um, half of them in the fall and half in the spring. These are one-off courses, They it's an opportunity to learn from a scholar about the new research area that they are exploring, and these courses will never be offered again. So um, it's a a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, I'm going, I think I will, should I introduce all of you, or, yes, I should introduce, okay. Thank you, Kenitra. I'm gonna, let me introduce (laughs) Professor, I'm gonna go in alphabetical order. uh, and I'll, I'll introduce each of them, and then we'll, we'll have a panel discussion um, to allow them to introduce their research projects to you so that you are, will be the first ones at Harvard to hear about the uh, the new research that they're bringing to the field of religious studies. Just one more thing I'm gonna do before I introduce this group. Do you all have this piece of paper? Um, This has all of their names and research projects on one side. On the other side, it has all of the 200 or so scholars who have participated in the Women's Studies and Religion program over the last 50 years. And you will see there the names of many scholars whose work you read as undergrads or in other venues or whose work you will be reading Um, during your time at the Divinity School. The scholars you're gonna meet today are working on the books that you will be assigning um, someday in your classes. And um, that's why it's so exciting to to get to have this upfront view of up and coming scholarship. So, um, so, They're not sitting in alphabetical order, but I'm gonna introduce them in alphabetical order, so you'll, but but their names are there, so you can see them. Um, Professor Kenitra Brooks, in the middle, um, is visiting with us from Michigan State University, where she is Associate Professor and the Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies in the Department of English. Um, She is well-known for her work on black women and genre fiction, particularly in the arena of horror. She's also uh, well-known for The Lemonade Reader, a collection of essays on Beyoncé's 2016 audiovisual project. Um, This year, she's going to be working on, uh, her project is entitled Divine Conjurers, Recovering Black Women's Intellectual Histories of Spirit Work. Um, She's going to be teaching, you're teaching in the spring term, yes. Um, You're gonna have to wait till spring to take a course on Conjure Feminism, um, which she'll be offering in the spring. Second, let me introduce Professor Elyon Hill down at the end. Uh, who's visiting with us from Southern Methodist University, where she is an assistant professor of African and African diaspora art history. She studies the embodied renderings of the domestic and transatlantic slave trades in Ghana, Togo, Benin, Liberia, and their diasporas. Um, She is going to be teaching also in the spring a course entitled Dancing Diaspora, black feminist art and practice. Um, Her research project is entitled Spirited Choreographies, Women's Ritual Identity and History Making in UWA Performance. Um, Professor Jordan Katz, where, there's Jordan. Um, is visiting with us from the University of Massachusetts where she is assistant professor of Judaic studies. She's a historian of early modern European Jewry with a focus on Jewish cultural history, history of medicine, and women and gender in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, She is teaching this fall a course on Jewish and Christian childbirth in early modern Europe and her project is entitled Delivering Knowledge, Midwives and the Making of Jewish Culture in Early Modern Europe. Um, The next is uh, Circes Mendez, where there's Circes. She is Associate Professor and Vice Chair of Women and Gender Studies at California State University in Fullerton. She focuses her research on race, gender, sex, and sexuality at the intersections of science and religion. And she's teaching this fall a course entitled When the Orishas Trouble Gender, Decolonial and Non-Binary Feminist Thought. Her research project is called Conjuring Another Humanity, Decolonizing Feminist Methodologies Within Afro-Latinx Ritual. Um, Next. We have Rahina Muwazu, Rahina. Um, she is a scholar of Islam um, and formerly a research associate at the Leibniz Zentrum Moderna Orient Berlin. She received her doctorate in Islamic studies from the Freie Universitat Berlin and her masters in Muslim culture studies from the Aga Khan University in London after beginning her uh, education at the University of Joss in her native Nigeria. She is teaching this fall a really innovative course on Quran recitation theory and practice. Uh, and her research project is entitled The Female Voice in the Quran and Quran Commentary. Tulsi, uh, excuse me. Pulisci Srinivas is visiting with us from far away Emerson College, across the river, um, where she is professor of anthropology, religion, and transnational studies at the Marlborough Institute for Interdisciplinary Studies at Emerson College. She is also a fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society and of the Indian Sociological Society. Um, she has published six books, including most recently one I'm sure you've seen on your syllabi, The Cow in the Elevator, An Anthropology of Wonder. Um, she will be teaching in the spring cor- term, a course, on the goddess, gender, sexuality, and sacred ecology in South India, excuse me, in South Asia. And her research project is The Runaway Goddess, Water, Gender, and Caste in the Climate Apocalypse. So um, let me now um, ask the research associates to tell you a bit about their work, and I'm going to return to the alphabetical order, if I may, and start with Professor Brooks. Um, Kenitra. You were among uh, a small group of scholars that coined the term conjure feminism as the topic for a special issue of last fall's issue, uh, uh, of last fall's journal uh, Hypatia, the Journal of Feminist Philosophy, as well as of your upcoming course. Um, What happens when you bring the words conjure and feminism together? And why did you think it was important to to do so. What made you think it could be possible to trace a genealogy of conjure feminism from the religious thought of a 17th century Congolese woman to 21st century fantasy fiction? Um, In less than five minutes, please. (laughs)
2: Um, So conjure feminism came about because one, the practice and traditions of the women of my family. So I was born and raised in New Orleans, and my great grandmother was a conjure woman. And she actually healed some fevers that I had as a little girl. Um, and I also knew that she deeply identified as a Christian woman and as, oh, OK. You want me to do my voice? I can do the voice. OK. <laughs> as a Christian woman and as a child in, of the Lord. Um, I know that womanist theology is very much structured within the Black Protestant practice. I thought that we needed terms that included those extra Christian practices that our grandmothers would do, that our aunts that we whispered about in our families, but also provided a spiritual grounding for uh, Black women and particularly in the U.S. South, because I wanted to ground it and give it a regionality as well. Um, One, not just because I'm a southerner, I also think so much of the black South is overlooked as a place of intellectual progress um, and uh, intellectuality in itself. So to say that, you know, it wasn't just us learning to cook from our grandmothers, it was also about us learning how herbs worked. It was also about us learning You know, how we could actually create and change reality um, by using the tools of our ancestors, right? So I wanted to bring these ideas together. And I also wanted to have this conversation about a continued conversation with Raboteau and Herskovitz and coming throughout of, you know, just how Christian is the black Christian practice, and, you know, specifically in terms of using Conjure because Conjure existed before the black church and it remains a part of the black church, it just isn't spoken about as openly acknowledged. So to have those sometimes uncomfortable conversations about where our Christianity begins and, you know, the blendings that happens in our practices as, as they are. Um, so, yeah, so I'm going through my notes. Um, in terms of bringing in um, the, uh, Doña Kipavita, Vita, she was um, burned as a heretic um, in 1706 in the Congo Kingdom. And um, she was a, an elite um, member of the Congo aristocracy. She was literate. Uh, she was a dyed in the world Catholic. She believed that Jesus was black and that she was possessed by the uh, spirit of Saint Anthony. And she was also a Madre in Nkisi, which meant that she would practices what's commonly known today as Palo Mayombe. So she was doing traditional indigenous African religious practices along with her Christianity and bringing this and tracing this sort of intellectual, political, heretical history to the women of the US South and eventually to the women um, uh, fantasy writers such as N.K. Jemisin, who writes about a, um, a conjure woman who used conjure as part of the civil rights movement. Um, we know that the civil rights movement focused a lot on Christianity. Um, there's also this, uh, this sort of narrative of the secularity of the black power movement. But we also know that traditional African religious practices were moving all throughout those political movements. So a lot of this is investigating... Um, this um, intertwined nature between black women's spiritual realities as well as uh, their political motivation and um, moving together and looking at how, you know, conjuring as a a magic practices of the black south, how it has roots in the African continent and how those practices have been continued.
0: Is that five minutes? I don't know, but it was perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. If, if people really stick to time, we're gonna have time for a few questions, but at, at the end, I don't know if that will happen. If it doesn't, at least you can have names and faces put together so that you can approach our visiting faculty during the year and address your questions to them, Either uh, over lunch or in their classes. Elian, Professor Hill, your book project, Spirited Choreographies, focuses on Iwa women in the coastal regions of Ghana and Togo who use ritual performances to transmit histories of migration and enslavement to young people. What attracted you to studying dance as a source for understanding? Cultural production of West African women? That's my first question. My second question is that, you know, as American academics, we are so familiar with the genre of the slave narrative. What intellectual shifts are required in your work to relocate women's narratives to the African continent where enslavement rather than slavery or escape from slavery forms the pivot point of the story?
3: thank you for these questions. Um, I really like to think of my work, I hope you all can hear me, I really like to think of my work as being about African art in motion and part of what that allows me to do is to bring together lots of different, um, not only disciplines, but also ways of thinking about devotional practices, ways of thinking about history making, ways of thinking about what counts as art, what counts as history um, and one of, one of the important elements of that is thinking about dance in a more serious way as a form of history making. Um, and for me, that involved not only, so the, the work that I do with Ewe women involves apprenticeship that I apprentice with um, elderly women who are teaching um, young women about not only their culture, but about very specific very complex histories that they don't like to talk about. So a lot of what happens in this transmission of knowledge about histories of domestic West African slavery, which would be um, coastal West Africans who purchased uh, Northern West Africans who were enslaved on on the coast, mostly women who were then incorporated into their families in lots of different ways. Um, But what that, you know, with a, with a history like that, so this is you know, between, usually between 1700 into the 1850s, so you have these histories that people don't want to talk about because they are taboo in a lot of ways, but that they're transmitting to young women. Um, and for me, what was important was to think about, you know, why, why don't we know more about these histories and part of the reason for that is that we focus so much on text. And even when I tell people, you know, I look at dance and visual histories, let's well, say, well, why don't you just do an oral history? Even oral histories have a different purpose than a danced history or a visual history. So um, I can't remember which scholar it is who, talks about this but she talks about the fact that a written history is about the event itself and oral history is about the interpretation of that event but to me i would say that a danced and a visual history that's about the relationship sometimes even spatialized relationships between different players so between the people who are involved whether it is you know past and present because you know i'm working with groups that are still speaking to their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for me, dance was a way for me to get around this focus on often colonial languages. So many of the women that I work with, they don't speak um, French or English, which are the, the national languages of Ghana and Togo. They don't write in Ewe, they speak Ewe, and they perform. So. Um, these women still have histories, and these histories are still essential to understanding the slave trade holistically, not just understanding the transatlantic slave trade, not just understanding African American voices and diasporic voices, but also how do those connect to the regional diasporas that are within West Africa, the complexities between different groups of people. Um, So for me, dance was my way of, of being able to step into these spaces of women's leadership and allow them to lead and teach me instead of saying, Oh, well, you know, you're not writing in this way, you're not producing histories in a way that academia has accepted, so I'm not going to count them. So for me, that was why dance was so important. Um, and in thinking about uh, African art in motion, I look at Needed regalia that is a part of the performances that the women do. that is a part of festival performance, which are considered to be secular, but there's you know, sacred secular in, in West Africa is mostly just a myth. Um, and then you know you have ritual practices which are more private. Um, and so you have altar building, um, which are kind of these water, these tables that are like these waterfalls of color with all of these different offerings for spirits. And one thing that I started to think about is the fact that many of the objects that are on an altar will also end up on people's bodies during performances. Mm -hmm. So whether it's, uh, as I said, the beaded regalia or even um, specific figures uh, that are meant to represent um, ancestors, um, even jewelry, certain pieces of jewelry will represent specific people or specific types of spirits, and these will be danced And so then the body is transformed in these moments into a type of altar. So I think about that as well. And uh, when Anne asks about um, how are we thinking about a slave narrative, for example, in this context in a very different way than we would think of it, say, in the US. um, For me, one of the big differences is we don't have the comfort that many, many of us go to of easy binaries So this is the enslaving person, this is the enslaved person. Because the people that I work with, that I speak to, they're descended from both. And I mean, many of us in this country are also descended from both. So it doesn't allow us to say, this person did this and this person did that, that we have to work within those tensions and understand what those stories mean within those tensions. Um, and what does it mean to have histories that are not fixed? that it's not written down and done, that it is continuing each time you perform it to have a new meaning, to have a new way of moving, that the spirits return to talk again. So that, I mean, I don't know if that's my five minutes, but you can ask me more questions, but that is, kind of the essence of the work that I do is trying to understand histories in a new way, trying to bring together disciplines like dance studies and art history um, so we can talk about devotional practices materially, so we can talk about gender in ways that really are not fixed, ways that depend on, you know, who, who which ancestor are you talking to now? <laughs> so,
0: Thank you so much. Um, Next, I'm going to turn to Jordan Katz. Uh, Jordan, I absolutely love the title of your book, In Progress, Delivering Knowledge, Midwives and the Making of Jewish Culture in Early Modern Europe. Um, It made me think uh, about my own experience of how vividly, when you bear a child, you can remember the words and actions of those who assisted with the delivery. Um, throughout your life. What made you want to study Jewish midwives? And how do you think your findings might add to the shape of the field of Jewish studies, which has not looked at midwives? Can you introduce us to one or two of the midwives who figure in your book? And why did they become midwives? And how might their experience have differed from that of their non-Jewish counterparts?
4: Yeah, um, so firstly I just wanna say um, it's so interesting to hear the other RAs, the other research associates um, talk about their projects because it's making me think about how much overlap there is in some of the themes even even with, um, you know, we're working with sort of different geographies and temporalities. Um, so that's really interesting. I, um, I came to this project in sort of, um, uh, I, I feel like it was a roundabout way, although maybe we all feel that way all the time about our projects. <laughs> um, I was I was really interested in um, the Jewish community in you know sort of a specific context of of, of early modern Western Europe. Mm-hmm. What are some of the the mechanics that make it tick? The institutions. Um, And I was also interested from a kind of different angle in medical history. Um, You know, once upon a time, I thought I was gonna go to medical school, and so maybe this was my way of sort of exercising that um, uh, uh, piece of my brain by doing medical history instead. Um, And so I started looking into um, texts written by physicians, Um, by Jewish physicians, and I came across again and again um, references to female Jewish experts, so so female Jewish medical practitioners. and then I, I, you know, I really started looking into um, rabbinic sources, so um, uh, correspondences, letters written back and forth but between rabbinic colleagues with kind of Jewish legal questions about what to do in a specific case, um, and I started noticing a trend that often in cases that have to do with Um, matters of purity, of a a kind of corpus of Jewish law that has to do with ritual purity. Um, When the questions center around a woman's body, um, many of these questions seem to be referred through some kind of female medical expert. and sometimes those women are referred to as midwives. Sometimes they are called um, wise women. This is interesting. Conjure women, right? Kind of this this kind of overlap. Um, wise women or um, cunning women is often the term that's used in sort of the English language um, scholarship about them. Um, and so I started realizing, right, in in sort of my training as um, a Jewish historian, that. You know, these this kind of story of women's medical roles as a way of um, seeing a sort of female agency in Jewish communities in this period is something that had not been looked at at all. Um, and it's one of those things that once you're sort of attuned to wow. it, um, you start to see it really everywhere. Um, and so you start to, you know, the the like many fields, um, Jewish studies and Jewish history was largely for many, many years dominated by male scholars, who often sort of prioritized um, the kind of the the kind of rabbinic correspondences and texts that I uh, that I actually was looking at, um, but they were really interested in the, the, the writers of these texts, the male figures, what, what's going on in terms of rabbinic law. I'm less interested in the sort of the legal outcomes of these and more in terms of what they can tell us about who was in the discourse, um, who was part of this sort of system of um, a republic of letters, if you will, a rabbinic republic of letters. Um, And so that's sort of the avenue through which I came to this project. Um, But then I started looking into um, communally held manuscripts because so many Jewish communities, almost every single one in Europe um, kept a or many records, registers of the kind of day-to-day occurrences in their commu- in the life of their community. Um, and you start to find midwives um, mentioned their salaries, specific instances that occurred, their roles in, um, in testifying about the paternity of an infant. Um, and so to me, it became a way to tell a different story about early modern European Jews, um, my kind of subjects of inquiry, then has been told before, and one that that really centers women to tell us something different about what was going on in this context um, and how a sort of medical lens can offer an alternative story. Um, So in terms of the second question, one of the midwives, who's very near and dear to my heart, having now worked on her um, for, I would say, I don't know, seven years, like plugging away at her texts, um, is a woman named um, Rachel or Rachel Solomons. Um, and Rachel Solomons became a midwife in Amsterdam in um, in 1709. and. What's so interesting about her is that we, you know, there are many Jewish midwives who kind of came to the medical college in Amsterdam, um, to officially register themselves, become licensed, um, go through apprenticeship, calling back to to Ilian's, um project as well, right? Apprenticeship was the kind of common um, path towards to, towards becoming a midwife. Um, but how do we know more about Rachel Solomon's? Um, we actually have a manuscript that um, she wrote in and that the cover page, the title page, um, was actually, a. Tr- it, it contains a translation um, of a text that was translated from Dutch into Yiddish. So just going back to Anne's question about what what was the experience or how how were Jewish midwives roles or training path different? um, The reason that Rachel Solomon's had this translation of a midwifery treatise um, rendered into Yiddish from Dutch is because she could not read Dutch, Um, and she could not read the city regulations in Dutch, um, and so she had to have them she commissioned a translation of these regulations and of this midwifery treatise so that she could kind of participate in these larger networks of medical culture um, that was surrounding her in Amsterdam and in Europe um, more widely. And this was often the case with Jewish midwives um, who were sort of part of the larger medical establishment. In some ways, you know, they went to go get go go register, pay their fees, um, get licensed, but they sort of stood apart in other ways. So whether linguistically or whether um, because they were employed by the community and not by the larger um, city municipal government. Um, and so just to stick with Amsterdam as an example, um, there are really good um, records about Jewish midwives who were employed by the Jewish community in Amsterdam. Uh, and that community, you know, one of the things that was distinct about Jews in this context is that they developed really their own system for managing medical care. Um, and so they divided midwives into Different quarters that they were responsible for, but this also mirrored what the city was doing with its Christian midwives, um, which was also dividing them into different quarters that they were responsible for. Um, so I hope, right, that this that this project, my my kind of wish for it, is that it throws into focus not only what you know a different story of the Jewish community, but of Jewish communal relations with their surrounding um, uh, municipal and bureaucratic structures. um, What are Jews pulling sort of from the outside? What are they resisting? Um, And how can we sort of um, provide a more textured narrative of what that interaction might have looked like in this period?
0: Thank you so much, Jordan. (laughs) Next, I'm gonna turn to Circus. Circus, your book on Afro-Cuban Santeria uses a close reading of ritual practice to trouble assumptions about what constitutes humanity, gender, sexed bodies, power, and religion. Why is it important to look at academic approaches to the study of gender and religion from the perspective of Santeria? What can we learn by doing so? And if you have time, You don't have to go there, but I'm so curious um, about the way that your work utilizes one of the most influential and widely read books that has come out of this program, the Women's Studies and Religion program, and that's Karen McCarthy Brown's landmark 1991 text, Mama Lola, Mm -hmm. a text which students and colleagues may be familiar with and um, Uh, I can't resist telling you this story that when Karen McCarthy Brown was here, um, uh, there was a fire in her home and the manuscript burned and she was kept in the WSRP a second year so she could rewrite the manuscript (laughs) Um, and uh, I'm really grateful that that happened. That was long before my time. Um, uh, But I wonder what has changed in the 30 years since Mama Lola was published that has enabled you to ask questions of the field of
5: religious studies
0: that could not be conceived of in 1991?
5: Thank you so much for those questions. Thank you for hanging out with us. Um, I actually am gonna start there because I, I, you know, I actually went to a program at Binghamton University that no longer exists and it was a philosophy program that allowed us to approach philosophy from a non-Western perspective. There was, at that time, this turn to really thinking about what are decolonial approaches to scholarship, right? So we were we were interested in this question of not just decolonization, but what they were referring to at the time as decoloniality. And that was, we started with this idea that coloniality um, lives beyond the end of formal colonialism. It lives in books, it lives in all of our approaches, it lives in the air we breathe. So what does it mean to take a step back and not begin from a colonial lens? So here I am in this program, right, and thinking like where does this pre-colonial, decolonial thing live? And I think it takes me back to what you were saying earlier about we don't have archives. If you come from the Caribbean, if you come from groups of people that were formerly colonized, your materials won't necessarily live in an archive. So you have to start thinking very creatively and expansively about where you're going to look And even if it is the case that what you inherit inherit are practices that have been touched by colonialism, which many of these practices have been, one of the things that I was interested in is in seeing if there were ingredients that managed to resist the colonial project. So I started thinking about access points that I had, access points that were familiar to me, I'm a dancer, um, I'm a salsa dancer. So, you know, I started asking this question, talk about roundabout ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what kind um, are there ways that you can imbibe other understandings of gender and sexuality through music and dance? That's where I started. And then I started thinking about the music that I grew up with. I mean, I was telling the story earlier, I grew up, my mom every Sunday would play what we call orisha music, right, mm-hmm. these, this, these rhythms and these, these, these patterns, this music that was calling to the orishas as we cleaned house, right? She, I was taken to um, Santeras as a child for healing and I have vivid memories, embodied memories of those ritual experiences. And so I started looking at these salseros who also happened to be Santeros, (laughs) like really famous salsa singers, like Hector Lavoe, or La Lupe, or Celia Cruz, which we were having, a. uh, (laughs) but what's interesting about that is, even if they were not uh, formally initiated into the practices, they were conjuring these orishas in spaces that were not considered, you know, sacred spaces by Western standards. And so, Going back to this art, this point about um, how do these practices trouble all kinds of binaries, right? The sacred and the secular, as well as binaries and assumptions we make about how to read space, how to read bodies, and how to read power in real time. So I was really interested in this thing that we were doing, and I'm in women's gender studies, right? So you know, we're doing these gender analyses that presuppose, that carry with them a lot of Eurocentric assumptions about how communities organize power, right? Who's left out of authority, deference? um, And in, in Santeria spaces, you will find a lot of women who wield an enormous amount of power, not just women, I'm talking about black women, right? Women who, if we come in with assumptions about who's at the bottom of the hierarchy, we're going to miss something, right? So so then the project really became about our ethical responsibility as researchers to really do our work to understand a cosmology from within it, to then take a step back and say, what are we looking for when we do the gender analysis, right? and I'll give you a concrete example, so you can so you can see what I'm talking about. So, for example, um, you might say there's this wonderful book called *The Invention of Women* um, by Oyeronke Oyewumi, and one of the things, one of the arguments in the book is that seniority is an organizing principle, right? She's talking about Nigeria. There is um, connections that have been made by Santeria practitioners to Nigeria, you know, explicitly. So I was interested in thinking about seniority in and of itself. Seniority as an organizing power system is more egalitarian than patriarchy, (laughs) right? A patriarchal arrangement because everyone's gonna get old, (laughs) right? So we all stand a chance, Um, right? So there's a little bit, it's not that there's no hierarchy, but that everyone gets a shot. So, you know, if you think about how Santeria operates, there's an organizing system that is spiritual seniority, right, that isn't necessarily tied to actual age, visible age. Something that you could read or see just by looking at the people in the space. And that forces you as a, as a researcher to really take a step back and say, wait, 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 how is power being constituted in this space at this time? All that to say that, you know, when she makes this argument in the book that researchers have gone to the space and have seen older men married to younger women, and have made arguments about patriarchal arrangements. This is patri- you know, patriarchal. But the question is, how do we know where seniority ends and where patriarchy begins? And while we tell the narrative of patriarchy, we are making invisible the possibility of seniority, right? So I'm interested in looking at systems of power that coexist, but are not necessarily that visible to to researchers who haven't done the work to find out a little bit more about the local, local modes of empowerment. So that's one example, there's many, many more that have to do with bodies, with altars, with possession, all types of practices that actually introduce non-binary, non-gendered ways of being in the world and that are completely operative. We don't have to make them up. They're not pie in the sky, right? We don't have to write a manifesto for them. They are there, and they can be activated and operationalized at any given moment. So I'm gonna leave it there. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much. Um, Next, I'd like to turn to Rahina Muazu. Um, Rahina, your project on whether women's public recitation of the Quran is prohibited by Islamic law concerns a practice that you yourself engage in and teach as a religious practice in addition to as the subject of your academic work. How do you think your work on the interpretation of Quranic texts is affected by the fact that you are a practitioner as well as a scholar of Quranic recitation. Do the two roles enhance each other? Do they ever conflict? Uh, One of the challenges of your project has been to translate the Arabic word aura for an English-speaking audience. Can you help us understand why this has been so challenging? and how the term differs from the standard translation of nakedness as Americans understand the term. Rahina.
6: Thank you, Anne. Uh, thank you all. Um, okay, so I would like to start, I mean, I will try to stay within time. I want to start briefly by ex- explaining my, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so, oh, it's better now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so thank you, Anne, for the questions. Um, so I work on, I study female voices in the Quran and I analyze uh, Quran interpretations, what is called tafsir. I also analyze fatwas that uh, legal opinions, uh, jurisprudential uh, positions of Muslim jurists and theologians. And my main question is to find out the position of the female voice on the Islamic law. Whether women's voices are Categorized under Awra, which I sometimes translate as nudity or uh, nakedness. And by that, so the understanding that, uh, I mean, the understanding of female voices as part of their nakedness means that the female voices must be taken out of the public space. You know, it's you know, they, if the jurists that understand the voices to be part of their nakedness, they ask women to cover the voices and covering the voices means women shouldn't talk or shouldn't sing or shouldn't recite the Quran in public spaces. So that's the focus of my work or I would say that's one aspect. It also has an, um, an ethnographic side we are in addition to looking at or analyzing the, the jurist positions I also study the implication of you know implications of those positions on women's lives and the society in general how for instance women, are sometimes able to build, to empower themselves to build capital when they are allowed to use their voices in public spaces. And to do that, I employ um, the theory of the forms of capital developed by a French uh, sociologist, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, and I see how women could gain, for instance, economic capital, symbolic, social, how they could become rich through public usage of their voices, especially in Qur'an recitation. Uh, so I will go, going back to Anne's question on my positionality and how it affects you know, being a practitioner. I recite the Qur'an. So, and I also study the Quran and also the, the, the voices, women's voices, as I have said. So, um, it's, it's challenging. I mean, you know, I was trained in a madrasa in northern Nigeria and, you know, I study uh, different Islamic sciences. I was also trained there to, in Quran recitation. And the questions I'm, taught to ask there differ from what I ask now. The whole, I would say the whole epistemology of knowledge is different. What is knowing? What does it mean to know? How we know is seen differently. I will sometimes uh, discuss my, my research with former Madrasa classmates and they will not see it you know, as count, counting as proper knowledge. Yes, so that's challenging, but I think more often than not, I find my two roles, or I'll say two trainings are more, you know, complementing each other. More for instance, Anne has mentioned, you know, briefly said something briefly about the course I'll be teaching uh, this semester. I hope to see some of you there. So it's an experimental course where I want to bring my training in the madrasa. Uh, to study the production of religious sound, particularly the sound of the Quran. So we'll do that through learning some of the recitation rules. And then that's in the first part of the course. And then in the second part, we take a step back and then we analyze that through the lens of gender in an interdisciplinary way by drawing uh, literature from anthropology, um, religious studies, cultural studies, ethnomusicology, and so on. Um, so, and with regards to the interpretation of our, so Aura is one of the main uh, themes of my research. It's an, it's an Arabic term. It's pronounced with uh, a deep—I um, don't know what to call it. Like you have to feel it here, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> as so, it's um, it's usually translated as. Uh, sometimes it's even translated as uh, private parts, uh, blemish, uh, genitalia, something like that. And in pre-Islamic period, the Arabs used to refer to houses that don't have protective fences as awra, and in the Quran, it's been used differently, ranging from uh, spaces of vulnerability to times of privacy. And under Islamic law, awra is usually used to, you know, refer to body parts of not only. Um, Women, but also men and children and former slaves. So it, you know, refer to those parts that shouldn't be exposed, shouldn't be seen by someone else. Um, So I, I translate is as I translate it now as you know. Sometimes I started with nudity and then I shifted to nakedness, but then the issue is. It's, you know, nakedness as, you know, one of the scholars, uh, Joseph Hill, recently pointed out to me, who is also working on Aura. So nakedness is the fact of being uncovered, right? I'm not a native English speaker. Yeah, but I think, I understand nakedness as, you know, being uncovered. An Aura is something that's supposed to be covered or protected from view, whether it's covered or not. So for instance, I understand my hair to be part of my aura, that's why I'm covering it. But the fact that it's covered now does not make it not aura. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I mean, -hmm. it's it's covered, Mm -hmm. but it's still aura. Mm -hmm. If I take my veil off, it means I'm showing my aura. Mm -hmm. If I, I mean, it's like this covered, it's still aura. Mm -hmm. It's still part of my aura. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of difficulty in trying to um, translate that into English. For now, I'm keeping the word nakedness until I find a better mm-hmm. inter- I mean, better uh, uh, translation. It's very interesting because conversations about aura are also conversations about you know a woman's visibility, audibility. they are conversations about space, a different the gendering of space, a different conceptualization of space. You know, that's not the you know not the Western conceptualization of, for instance, like a Habermas public space and so on. Yes, so I, sorry, (laughs) I will stop here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Last, I will turn to Tulasi. Tulasi, your book, The Runaway Goddess, focuses on the city of Bangalore and its transition from the garden city of your childhood to one of the front lines of climate apocalypse in the 21st century. Why do you think it's important to move away from the Eurocentric notion of the Anthropocene toward an approach to climate crisis founded in indigenous Dalit practices and a feminist Hindu theology. What do you hope to accomplish by making such a shift?
1: In five minutes. In five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Anne is truly one of the greats because she asked the question that I cannot answer yet. Uh, um, The question that is the challenge of my year here. But let me begin with, as an anthropologist, let me begin with a shared experience. I hope it's shared. Um, Many of you, since it's summer, must have bathed in the ocean or swum in a pond or dipped your feet in a lake or a river, or perhaps because it's a hot and sweaty day, you've drunk from a bottle of water. And I um, remember as a child swimming in a natural pond under a lyrically blue sky in my hometown of Bangalore. And I went there a couple of years ago. And it is a showroom for the Lamborghini cars. Mm. Um, This experience of floating in water is originary. It is primordial. It is of the womb. It is natality. It is birth. It is creation. And so we get the idea, and this is why we go to other planets looking for it that water is life. Mm -hmm. And yet we find that drought and floods have overtaken our world. Look at the Southwest where the Colorado River dries. Look at London with its brown lawns. Look at Beijing or look at Cape Town which are seconds away from a day zero. And so then I asked my question My book, The Absent Goddess, asks this central question. If water is life, what is a life without water? For drought is real, it is inexorable, and it is on the horizon. Perhaps this is why water is sacred for all great world religions, yeah? It is certainly sacred in Hinduism, which is my area of expertise. In Hinduism, water is cosmological. It is um, the force of creation. It is the ocean on which the great god Vishnu, the protector, floats in eternal time. It is the manifest on earth as the goddess Ganga who purifies and gives life and cultivation to that which cannot be cultivated. So I look at these feminine images of water and I asked, what are we destroying? Mm-hmm. What are we destroying? And the word, the Anthropocene, the history of the Anthropocene, is a deeply colonial, extractive, post-industrial, post-colonial critique of industry and capitalism. And sure, it gets us to a lot of places, but where it gets us to it is a description of crises. It gets us to an anthropology of grief. But how do we get to an anthropology of repair? That is the pivot point. And for that, I turn to a, um, women in the city of Bangalore, um, largely indigenous. One comes from, a group come from a cast of orchard farmers um, whom I met as she was standing on the edge of a lake that had burst into flame due to pollutants. And she cried, she said, The goddess has run away from the temple near the lake. Maybe she has been raped by the developers. So when the goddess runs away, what does that say to us? What is the vocabulary that we can use? So if the Anthropocene is no longer valid, Perhaps we need to turn to Gauri on the edge of the lake to find out her indigenous practices of orchard farming through drought and flood. Or perhaps we should turn to uh, Mariaman, who um, uh, is a Dalit farmer, who rip, a Dalit well digger and farmer, uh, who came from a caste of female well diggers and who built mud check dams, and ask what, is their knowledge of repair, yeah? Because um, as everyone on this panel, and we are so fortunate to have the year to talk to one another, has argued that colonial knowledge, rational, scientific, and wonderful, for it gets us out of pandemics or very close to, is not the only system of knowledge. Yet it has overwritten many other systems of knowledge. Don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-science, but I am saying there's another form of rationality that we need to pay attention to because we're certainly not getting there with this system. It's not giving us the totality of value of that which we are losing. So we lose it, and then we look in the rearview mirror and we say, what have we lost? And by then, it is slightly too late. And perhaps Mariam and Ngoiria have a sort of an indigenous response that we need to understand. So uh, my answer to Anne's difficult question is, I know that the archaic capitalist estrangement formulations of the Anthropocene are not don't get us to a point of respect and healing. It is perhaps to be found at the crumbling edges of what we consider the world that we must turn in order to get these answers to repair. And so this book is the third part of a three-part series on Bangalore. The first one was An Anthropology of Wonder, The Cow in the Elevator. The second one, which I'm just finishing, um, is An Anthropology of the Sublime, which deals with women and beauty parlors. Um, and the third one will deal with the lakes and p- water and pollution, and it will lead us, hopefully, out of dread and into something better. Thank you.
0: Thank you much so much to Lassie. That was a wonderful note to end on. Uh, we're out of time. We don't have time for questions. All I can say is I have the best job in the world. Aww. I mean, <laughs> uh, really, you can just imagine the conversations we're going to be having in the Carriage House throughout the year as we workshop chapters and bring these projects to fruition. So Uh, Come visit us. Uh, Come to each one. We'll be giving a research lecture during the year. Come to the lectures, and um, we hope to see you there. Copyright 2022 The President and Fellows of Harvard College.